0: Welcome to the Ritchie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Robert Fosbury. Robert Fosbury is an Emeritus Astronomer at the European Southern Observatory and an honorary professor at the Institute of Ophthalmology at University College London. For 26 years, Bob has worked at the European Space Agency as part of their collaboration with NASA on the Hubble Space Telescope. He joined this initiative in 1985, more than five years before the launch. During the latter part of this period, Bob served on NASA's Ad Hoc Science Working Group and the ESA's study science team as they developed the instrument concepts for the James Webb Space Telescope, the next generation of space observatory. Since then, Bob has become an integral part within the Institute of Ophthalmology at UCL with his unique perspectives on light and its interactions with the Earth's atmosphere. His interdisciplinary contributions to this team at UCL have led to new hypotheses developing, particularly surrounding the beneficial effects of specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light and the detrimental effects of the narrow-spectrum blue light that is emitted from modern lighting fixtures and appliances. Bob and the team at UCL with Professor Glenn Jeffrey, are working hard to explore and share the damaging effects of blue-spectrum light from artificial sources. Commonplace now, most artificial lighting peaks at wavelengths that have devastating effects on the energy production systems of the cell, the mitochondria, as well as having negative effects on circadian rhythm. Bob is extremely passionate and incredibly humble in his pursuits. I find his experience within this interdisciplinary team at UCL to be warming and very hopeful for the future of science. I had an amazing conversation with him that spanned over two hours and I could have spoken to him for much longer. Bob is really easygoing, very willing to listen and learn. Uh, I feel very grateful to have had the chance to speak with him about his ideas because I strongly believe that they will be proven in the years to come. We got to cover a lot of ground in this episode with topics from astrophysics to red light therapy and particularly the dangers of isolated blue light. The key takeaway from this from my perspective is that the biggest public health crisis going on right now is artificial light. Hopefully, with work like his and Glenn Jeffries, we will be able to turn the ship around and get to make light safe again. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for um, taking some time to speak with me today Bob I've really been looking forward to this I've been a little bit nervous to talk to you because this is well out of my wheelhouse some of the things that we're going to be talking about Um, but you've got a lot of interesting ideas and um, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts Um, right or wrong I think it's just great to you know uh, get some of these things out so um, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, how you got involved. in light uh looking at light from your background in astrophysics
1: okay i'll do that uh cameron um I'm, i i'm out my outside my comfort zone as well i mean I'm, I'm not a biochemist uh i know a bit about light but uh i have got involved with the visual neuroscientists at ucl and uh it's a slightly curious story but i'll 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 try and outline it briefly for you i mean i As you know, I spent my career in astrophysics. I started at the Royal Greenwich Observatory in the late 60s, on a summer course there. I eventually did a PhD at Sussex and the Royal Observatory, and uh, became a research fellow there for a short while, and then went on to Australia. Actually, I I went to on one of the first two fellowships to the Anglo Australian Observatory. They just built this uh, collaborative uh, 4 meter telescope in uh, in in Cunabarabran, um in the Warren Bungles and uh, I was lucky enough with the, actually my office mate to get the first two fellowships and uh, so we spent time in Australia anyway that my my career progressed from there through a number of stages the European Southern Observatory working at CERN and then back at the Royal Observatory working on the new uh, telescopes on La Palma and then going back to the European Southern Observatory, actually employed by the European Space Agency to work on the Hubble program, which I did for, I think, 26 years. So I was very familiar with the Hubble program. Uh, We collaborated very closely with NASA, of course. We were the European branch of the Hubble operation. And uh, during that time, of course, this was the time of the gestation of the, what became the James Webb Space Telescope. And uh, I was one on one of the early NASA committees, the so called ad hoc science working group uh, that was tasked with selecting the kinds of instruments that should fly on the, on the web telescope. And we did that in the late 1990s. And then I was involved in the beginning of the um, the European, one of the two European instruments that flew on, on, on the web telescope. And this is the uh, near-infrared spectrometer, which was actually built in Munich, which was very close, within a kilometre of where I lived at the time. And we were involved with the industrial um, uh, um, contractors to uh, begin to design and uh, construct the the instrument. Now, I didn't continue with that for very long because I had to go back to Hubble. Um, but I did make one or two sort of very minor contributions to, to that, including, um, uh, thinking of a way to have an absolute, uh, wavelength calibration on the, on the telescope, because the telescope has to be cooled to a very low temperature, um, 40, 40 kelvins. And you can't use lamps for, for calibrating wavelengths because you can't dissipate the energy in the telescope. So I had to think of a, a way of doing that which didn't involve using any energy, and that, that was using a a rare earth, uh, a, a, a lanthanide uh, in a in a filter, um, which provides dark uh, absorption lines, uh, which are very narrow, because uh, the lanthanides have inner shell transitions in in the in in the lanthanide um, um, atom, and these inner shell transitions are protected from the surrounding Coulomb disturbances of crystals and so on. And so the, the lines remain relatively sharp. So it's almost like having an atomic clock inside a, inside a, inside an atom. And you can use that as an absolute wavelength calibration. And I suggested this in the early 2000s and it, uh, they actually adopted the idea and it's actually sitting in the, in the telescope. That was a minor contribution. That's a major contribution that one of my colleagues, uh, had on the telescope, but maybe we'll come to that a bit later. Anyway, my, my, uh, Career progressed until I, I had to retire from the European Space Agency. And I decided when I retired, I could see so many of my colleagues were basically just continuing what they were doing before, i.e., astrophysical research, uh, without being paid for it <laughs> on a pension, so to speak. And um I didn't really want to do this, not because I wasn't interested in astronomy, but I I developed broader interests in, in light and color. In fact, I'd always been interested in light and color since I was a kid, and it was really the color of the sky that led me into astronomy rather than the astronomy itself. I was always fascinated with the, the sky and all of its colors. And uh, this led to me becoming an amateur astronomer, so I you know, went through the usual path of building my telescope and so on, and I really wanted to be an astronomer. and. Um, I kind of made it in into the into the field which was fortunate. Um, uh, it was not it was easier then than it is now, I have to say in the in the 60s uh, but it was still not an easy uh, task to get into a field where you really wanted to do research. Um, but um, this interest in light and color remained with me throughout my period as an astronomer and I spent a lot of my time. I have my own spectroscopes early on, and now spectrometers, uh, which I use to study a very wide range of things in geology, biology, and so on. I have a I have a Flickr site which has lots and lots of spectroscopic observations in it of all kinds of things, um, and that was a, a kind of uh, secondary interest of mine that I I continued. So when I uh, when I when I started to retire, I was invited by an astronomical colleague of mine, who was Professor of Astronomy in Durham uh, to apply for an interdisciplinary fellowship at the Institute of Advanced Study in Durham. And um, he said, well, you know, we'd like you to come, but there's five days before the deadline and you have to get referees and references and so on. I said, look, there's no way I'm going to get referees and references (laughs) in five days. You all have to write them for me. (laughs) Anyway, I got onto this fellowship, which was three months in Durham given the freedom of the university to go around and talk to people in all the different departments and uh faculties and so on. Uh, uh, and that was a real eye opener for me uh, to, to, to spread my wings and, you know, think about humanities, think about chemistry and, um, geology and, and all of these things. And, um, I kind of thought I should know more about the earth and evolution and Geology and biology and things like this. So I, you know, I started taking an interest in reading up things and uh, I, I, I happened to be browsing the, the web, which I don't do very much, but I noticed there was a, a video produced by the BBSRC, the Biological Research Council at the time, and it was about reindeer in the Arctic and uh, this was somebody uh, who had written a paper had uh, spent a lot of time in in around Tromsø working with the Sami people in the Arctic, and uh, they had been studying reindeer vision. And he was from the Institute of Ophthalmology in UCL next to the Moorfields Eye Hospital, and he'd spent a lot of time in the, in the Arctic with with um, local physicists and the Sami people um, studying the way reindeers see in the winter, and they discovered that reindeer. Um, they they induce a rather profound change in their eye during the arctic winter and uh because the light obviously it's tw- twilight it's mostly twilight during the arctic winter the sun circles around the horizon mostly entirely below it in the in the in the three winter months around Tromso, and so you get very long periods of twilight now i knew that twilight was extremely blue uh, and I knew why, and I'd studied it myself m- many decades before. And uh, I noticed that in the paper that these people wrote, they didn't mention why why the reindeer had to change its uh, vision during the winter. <laughs> so I, r- I wrote to this guy and I said, well, I really like the paper, it's a very interesting topic, but you didn't mention why the reindeer had to do this. <laughs> he said, if I may quote the email uh, verbatim, he wrote back the next day and said, Oh, shit, He said, I knew we should have an atmospheric physicist on the team. <laughs> now, I wasn't actually an atmospheric physicist, but I ended up joining the team. I mean, after some while, we exchanged emails and we and we exchanged Zooms. Uh, well, we was we not Zoom then. We, we Skyped one another. And um, uh, eventually, I started going to the lab and uh, eventually started doing experiments on other reindeer eyes that he had. And, uh, well, to cut a long story short, uh, we sorted out. Uh, exactly what happened in the eye to make the changes, and um, during that time, because I had um, I had difficulty getting into the building because you know there's a, a lot of security in in university buildings now, and uh, so he said he'd get me an entrance card for this uh, for, for for the building so I could get in without dragging him down from the third floor every time. Anyway, the entrance card the, the said honorary professor at UCL. So this gave me access to the library, which was fantastic, because I didn't have access to a university library after I retired. So this was great. And uh, so I did spend time there and uh, worked on this. And he really wanted me to write a paper about it. And I was being very slow because I was trying to understand biology and so on. In the end, I, I did write a paper and we submitted it this year and uh in june and um well no actually we submitted it in march and uh I, we had two referees who, who basically tore me to shreds because i didn't have the right language i didn't introduce the context properly and so on but these two referees were extraordinarily helpful and they wrote very detailed comments about what i'd missed out and what i should have said and so on so i took all these comments and i rewrote the paper and it came and it was um resubmitted and with great trepidation from me because you know i'd never written a paper in biology before and this was being submitted to the proceedings of the royal society which is not a minor journal <laughs> and i didn't really expect to get it through but um after i'd rewritten it um i got a a, a note back from the editor saying um, you did a really good job of, of convincing the referees so it was it was it was accepted and um, when you write papers these days, you have to write a short. Pre- when, when a paper is accepted in these journals, so you have to write a short press release, hundred words press release. So I wrote a hundred words press release and sent it off and didn't think any more about it. But the week before publication, I got began to get contacted by magazines and so on. So I got the Atlantic in in the US and the the Conversation in in the UK, saying, you know, will you will you write or um, interview and get an article about the the reindeer uh, that comes out on the day of publication, which it did and uh, two articles came out on the day of publication and it in the journal they report the attention that this is given and uh, this was this this came out as one of the top five percent of science stories around the world on that day and I realized that writing papers on reindeer, it's much more popular than writing papers on distant galaxies. So yes. I was in a new world, uh, which was this, which was quite a, uh, quite a shock at the time. But I mean that that was my way into uh, collaborating in biology. Uh, so really, uh, I think my contribution was to be to provide uh, some kind of experience with the way light works. Uh, with a view to understanding how light interacts with biology. Right. Well, the, the, the real story, um, that was a, a slight distraction just to explain how I got into it, but the real story, when I started turning up at, at UCL um, to work on this stuff, uh, they were working on the effects of red light on animal models. Uh, they were actually using uh, fruit flies, Drosophila. Mm-hmm. At the time, and they were they were shining um, red light onto onto the fruit flies and looking at various metrics of their uh, their biology and behavior, and it was clear that this was producing a really rather profound effect on this animal model. I think they were also looking at other animals. They were looking to some extent at, at bees and also mice, and later humans as well. Uh, not humans at that time. Um, but this was very interesting. I, I thought this was extremely interesting. And I, I said, well, you know, what wavelength do you use for this? And he said, um, 670 nanometers. And I said, why are you using 670 nanometers? I mean, out of genuine interest. And he said, well, seems to work. And other people seem to be using it. And I, I said to him, I mean, I, I, my first words were, do you realize this is where chlorophyll does photosynthesis? (laughs) And um, this just struck a chord with me at the time. And uh, I thought this is really interesting. And, you know, I had learned that, um, you know, the idea of photosynthesis, and uh, the origin of the chloroplast, and the origin of the mitochondrion, go way back in evolutionary history. I mean, we're talking about going back billions of years. So this was a connection to the very distant past. And I'd always been interested in the process of photosynthesis. I'd read books about photosynthesis. So my my introduction to biology at this level was really through trying to understand photosynthesis and in particular the history of the discovery of the various processes that contributed to it. And it was clear to me on on reading about this that the physicists played a major role in this, uh, you know, partly with the the use of uh, uh isotopes to track uh molecular movements uh within the process to 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 find out where the you know where the where the, where the carbon came from and yeah. where the oxygen went and so on. Um and also, when there was the problem of how the photon energy was transferred to uh, the reaction center in the chloroplast, you know, for I, I was fascinated by this because I wondered whether it was to do with fluorescence, whether there was a fluorescent energy transfer or, or how did the photon energy that was absorbed in the antenna pigments in the chloroplast, how did that actually get fed into the electron transport chain in the chloroplast to start the the photosystem two in photosynthesis and get things moving. And, uh, you know, as you probably remember that this was, this was a problem that was actually solved in the early 2000s by doing high speed laser um, uh, 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 tracking of the, of the process and um, realizing that there was a, I suppose one of the first realizations in biology that there was quantum mechanics was actually playing a role in biology, which shouldn't have been a surprise, but, but I think it was a surprise to the biologists. And there was this very efficient um, transfer of an exciton in the antenna pigment into the reaction center in the chloroplast uh, via the wave function of the exciton. And, uh, you know, using the old language in quantum mechanics, the wave function collapsed at the uh, yeah. uh, at the reaction centre and transferred the energy without this random walk through other um, antenna pigment molecules, which was thought to be going on at the time.
0: So my yeah. understanding yeah. of this um, was that it was assumed that quantum processes couldn't happen in biological systems because there was too many things to prevent um, any any coherence from happening. There exactly. Completely... The temperatures were too high. Yes. Yeah, it so, was warm and wet, so it couldn't happen. Yeah. It had to be cool. Yeah, yeah, right. So so when this was first proposed, it was basically laughed at um, yes. that these quantum processes were happening. And I think it's like, is photosynthesis something like 36 quantized steps? Like it's a very, very careful process um, to get all the way down, um, which, is, which sounds crazy that it's... Um, Quantum, but I mean, when you when you think it's interacting with photons of light, you're, you're right. It's probably not that crazy now that you think about it.
1: Yes, it's a perceptual change. I mean, it's obvious that quantum mechanics is responsible for everything we do. Of course, the, the the way that the realization of that uh, obvious fact takes quite a long while to sink into the. Uh, the broader scientific community, and we'll, I hope we'll come back to this question of the broader scientific community and how they interact, how how people in different fields interact with one another, because I think that's terribly important. Yeah. Uh, but as yeah. far as the quantum mechanics of photosynthesis concerned, uh, that was uh, a problem that was addressed, and I think solved to a large extent by the physicists. And uh, so that was an indication that one needed a very broad um, attack on these very complex problems in order to. Piece them all together, and a photosynthesis is a wonderful example of that collaboration over many, many years. Producing, I, I can't, I can't say that people understand photosynthesis perfectly. I don't think they do, but mm. certainly, it's understood at a very deep level now. Anyway, the, the, this this germ of an idea of the connection between the the wavelength used to study these processes in mitochondria and uh the 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 process going on in plants in photosynthesis it just stuck in my mind and uh i'm not sure where it's going um my collaborator was a bit skeptical and in fact he used to get rather agitated when i talked about photosynthesis because he said my colleagues will never talk to me if they if they realize i'm working on plants (laughs) (laughs) but um anyway that that was that was something that really um, tweaked my interest in this and then that was go- that those experiments were going on I wasn't directly involved in those although I certainly discussed with the his lab what I thought about the processes so I was a kind of external um, sounding board for some of the experiments they were doing but then they were talking about blue light blue light seemed to do the opposite blue light seemed to, um, have negative effects on, on, on these animal models. Um, and the question was, why was that happening? And um, again, there were some accidental uh, uh, collisions between ideas. The, the, these visual neuroscientists realized that blue cone photoreceptors seem to behave differently from the longer wavelength cones. And they had discovered that uh, the blue cones contain fewer mitochondria than the uh, than the medium and long wavelength cones. I mean the, the, most of the cones in your eye are packed full of mitochondria because the the photoreceptors use uh, they actually use far more energy per cell than any other cell in your body. They use more energy than muscle cells, they use more energy per cell than brain cells even because to reload your photoreceptor after it's detected photons uh, takes a lot of energy. And the, the puzzle was that the blue cones seem to use glycolysis. They seem to want to do the, use the inefficient energy generation process of burning sugars uh, to make some of their energy. And this didn't seem to make any sense. Why would they do this? Because it's it's inefficient. Um, It's damaging to cells and uh, it didn't seem to be right. So um, we were thinking, we were thinking about why this might, why this might be the case. And um, we thought, well, why do the mitochondria, why do these, uh, why do these blue cones have so few mitochondria? And then I was doing—I think I was doing a literature search—and I found uh, I found a paper in the in the SPIE, the Society for Optical Engineering. I, I can't remember what the acronym is exactly, but it's a it's a journal that's often used by engineers who build telescopes and instruments. So I was familiar with this journal, and the biologists were not at all familiar with this journal. Mm-hmm. And I found a paper which had actually measured the um, the absorption spectrum of mitochondria because they were interested in getting light energy deep into the body for various kinds of therapies. So they wanted to know what in, in, in the body absorbed what. And so they had a measurement of, um, they extracted mitochondria from the liver of a rabbit or something, I can't know what it was, but um, and they shone light through it and, and, and produced an absorption spectrum. And this had a strong absorption at around 418 nanometers in the, in the deep blue. So I, I, I sent this, I, I sent this paper, copy of this paper to the, the people in UCL and uh, it kind of uh, blew them away. They didn't know this and they said, well, if mitochondria absorb in the blue and you have all the mitochondria in the light part, you know, because the, the light has to go through that, uh, that, that segment of the f- photoreceptor before it reaches the um, the receptor itself. Um, if it absorbs blue, you maybe that's the reason that they don't have so many mitochondria because they don't want to absorb too much blue light before it gets to the, the receptor itself. Uh, so we published a paper about that uh, some years ago and uh, we actually also tried to extract um, mitochondria ourselves uh, and and look at the absorption spectrum, and we did this and we got essentially exactly the same result, rather better right. result, but right. the same result as was discovered before. So it, it's clear that mitochondria absorb blue light, which, if you think about it, is not a surprise because mitochondria uh, have uh, I mean, they have heme. They they actually um, synthesise haemoglobin, so they have they haemoglobin in there in, in in themselves, and they they also have cytochrome cytochrome c as part of the electron transport chain, and and they're they're porphyrins, and they have a sorry band in the blue at around four twenty nanometers, so it's no surprise that they absorb in the blue, uh, but this was an example of a case where that blue absorption was a hindrance to the operation of the photoreceptor. So it had to modify it had to modify its its energy generation process. And um, so the group there got more interested in blue light. And as the worries about blue light illumination became more and more apparent, um, we became more and more interested in what the process was where why was the blue light damaging and uh, what was it actually doing and I think you know quite a lot of people are working on this now and I I think the the consensus opinion is that the uh, uh the damage is done by reactive oxygens and um uh somehow the blue light stimulates uh this re- generation of reactive oxygens in the in the in the mitochondria yeah,
0: yeah. It was so that very. Was it was very interesting um, that paper that you sent me um, yesterday, the uh, one from Scott Zimmerman and um, Russell Ryder. Um, yeah, one of my favorite papers actually, and um, he uh, references a paper where they make the case that if you were outside in sunlight, uh, most of the uh, reactive oxygen species that you would make or about half of them wouldn't come from UV, they would actually come from visible light, um, which no one really gives any uh, thought to at all whether visible light can have any health or uh, beneficial or detrimental effects um, because, you know, we can kind of see it, we're aware of it. Um, There's not really any attention being called to it. But like you said, now there seems to be a consensus coming around that narrow spectrum blue light that is devoid of um, red light as well is uh, very, very damaging. And and like you said, the mitochondria um, are basically just shut up shop as soon as, as soon as they get shone with that blue light. Um, I know uh, that uh, Glenn and um, one of his colleagues uh, who's now in France have um, published work about how mitochondria just seem to, say no I'm not going to do anything if you're going to shine with blue light that's not balanced by red Um, so and just before I forget you mentioned uh, earlier that twilight is um, rich in in blue light Um, now I was used to the idea that when the sun is on the horizon it is more um, densely populated with the reds and the yellows and the pinks and the oranges um so how come twilight is is more blue rich uh than i would have i would have anticipated if it's on the horizon it would be more uh red uh in the red
1: well when i when i say twilight i mean twilight after the sun has set yeah so we're not talking yes the light from the sun of course is very red because the uh all the blue light is actually rayleigh rayleigh and aerosol scattered out of the beam Mm-hmm. Uh, when the when the sun is on the horizon, you have to travel about 40 times the amount of atmosphere uh, to 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 reach you when the sun is on on the horizon uh, than you do when the sun is directly overhead. This is called the air mass. you have an air mass of one when the sun is overhead yeah. and you have an air mass of 40 when the sun is on the horizon. So when the light is coming from the sun directly to your eye, uh, you have to travel through this very large column of atmosphere and the dominant process of getting rid of the blue light is Rayleigh scattering and to some some extent the scattering by aerosols because Rayleigh scattering is much stronger in the blue than the red. Right. In fact, it's about, uh, um, it's about eight or nine times stronger uh, in the deep blue than it is in the far red. But aerosols also scatter predominantly blue light, although the, the the ratio is not nearly as high. It's more but more a factor of two rather than a factor of eight or nine. Yeah. Uh, so you very effectively distribute this blue light over the sky, and remove it from the direct beam from the sun. Right. Um, the thing that wasn't understood and is still not widely understood by even by scientists is that the uh, the colour of the twilight sky uh, is blue, uh, like the daytime sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the twilight sky blue is a totally different physical mechanism from the Rayleigh scattering of the daytime sky. When you look at a daytime sky, you're seeing Rayleigh scattered light. So it's a it's a pure. Soft blue. I mean, gradually you get less and less red light as you go further. Uh, as you go, well, less and less light as you go further to the red. Um, at twilight, this basically jumps to a different physical mes- mechanism, which is one of absorption. Now, the strongest absorber in uh, in, in in the visible spectrum in our atmosphere is ozone. -hmm. Uh, Which is in a layer between about 12 and 14 and 40 kilometers uh, altitude. Uh, So we don't, we have very little ozone at ground level generally without lightning flashes and so on. Uh, But we get a lot of ozone high in the atmosphere. And we all know about the ozone hole and so on. It's high atmospheric physics that produces the ozone. And ozone is blue. Uh, If you look at liquid ozone, Mm -hmm. it's a gorgeous ultramarine blue, very rich blue. And that's because we know about the the absorption of ozone in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum because it allows us to survive. Uh, It absorbs all of the damaging or most of the damaging ultraviolet light and allows life on the surface to survive. Uh, But there's another absorption uh, centered in the orange uh, called the Schaeffi band after the uh, after Shapui in 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 I think the early part of the last century. I can't remember exactly when. Um, and that's that band is generally very weak when the sun is high in the sky. Astronomers know all about it because they have to measure it to to look at atmospheric extinction of starlight. Uh, but most people are not aware of this uh, absorption band in 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 the visible spectrum in the orange. And it's a very, very broad band. It's a very unusual looking band. It's complex in shape and it's very, very broad. It's centered quite near the sodium D lines in the the orange uh, and it spreads into the red and it spreads right down through the yellow into the green and is very weak by the time it gets to the blue. So you get this big, very, very big absorption band, which uh, as the sun sets, as we said the path length through the atmosphere increases Mm -hmm. this band becomes increasingly strong as the sun gets lower down in the sky and uh, it begins to become noticeable in the color of the sky around about the time of sunset even when the sun is still above the horizon if you look at the sky uh, the sky is taking on a color which is strongly influenced by the ozone in fact it's remarkable that if you If you model the sky, the color of the sky with just these scattering processes, absorbing, uh, avoiding the, ignoring the absorption by ozone, the color of the clear twilight sky at sunset would be straw yellow, slightly grayish straw yellow. But if you look at the sunset, it's an incredibly deep metallic blue purple. And this is entirely due to ozone. Mm And this was discovered in the in the late 1940s and early 1950s uh, by the American atmospheric scientists who were firing um, donate, rockets donated to them by the by the Germans after the war uh, into the high atmosphere to study the the colour of the sky and the, the strength of Rayleigh scattering and so on. And there was a guy called um, Hulbert, who was flying these rockets, and he'd calculated the brightness and color of the uh, of the twilight zenith sky using Rayleigh scattering models of the atmosphere, and he found that the uh, the measured uh, color and brightness was very different from what he what he uh, what he computed, and this was a real puzzle around the late forties, around the time I was born actually, and um, he published a paper in 1953. Uh, about the color of the twilight sky uh, showing that it was due to ozone gas absorption and this shapi band beautiful paper described very clearly with lots of models and so on completely solved the problem but of course nobody knew about this paper i didn't know about this paper
0: right
1: i studied the color of the sky myself independ- entirely independently without any knowledge of this paper in the early 90s and i came to the same conclusion. I realized by looking in my astronomical reference books, there was this absorption band in the orange called the ozone shabby band. And I modeled it myself. And I, I made this discovery entirely independently in the early 90s. And It was many years later. I mean, I didn't think terribly much about it. I thought, okay, well, that's the answer. But uh, I didn't know the history at all. And I was sitting down with the colleagues in the Space Telescope Institute in Baltimore, I spent a lot of time there and uh the person i was talking to at the time had studied atmospheric physics under somebody called goody Um he was the, the father of um he was the father of atmospheric physics i've got them i've got his book here wow and this guy did his PhD under this guy and he remembered something about ozone so we looked up in the book and he found this reference to ozone so it was a couple of decades later that I discovered that my discovery in the early 90s had been done by, actually, by Hilbert in, in the 1950s. So I became I became very fond of this problem. I mean, I was attached to this question about ozone. It also has many implications in in art and uh, poetry and so on, because, you know, the the artists call the the, 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 the hours of twilight or the hour of twilight, the hour blue, le blue. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's a time where artists are aware of the fact that the special atmosphere of the light, special uh, quality of the light at these times, and they realize what it was. But your eyes don't really see this, because it's the time when you are transferring to your rod vision, which is, of course, colorblind, and also your eyes are very good at adapting to changes in, in color. As yep. you know, you, you adapt to a color, so you don't see it. You see it as gray rather than blue. But if you take photographs of twilight, with a with a a daylight color balance set on a white balance set on your camera you'll find that half an hour after sunset the sky and the whole environment is incredibly blue you'll think you made a mistake with your camera in the old days you made a mistake developing the film because it's so blue um i guess it's somewhat
0: confusing or or at least you could say i don't understand it um because um you would think that the Uh, the wavelength that has the biggest impact on something as simple as the pineal excretion of melatonin at Mm. night wouldn't be present at night. So um, I'm wondering whether the intensity of that light um, is very high um, or it's just that it's relative uh, abundance to the other wavelengths is so high. Um, well that
1: the two very you raised two very interesting points. I think twilight is quite faint, of course. Mm. Uh the, the the intensity is down by uh factors of uh, tens of thousands from from daylight. So um, the intensity is very low. Um but it is also true that uh the, the, the balance of, of lighting is very different and uh coming back to the reindeer for the moment and the yeah. adaptation of the reindeer the reindeer adapts to see this um the residual light after you after the ozone has absorbed the rest and the if you look at that spectrum uh you find that it it peaks very strongly in the blue at about four fifteen nanometers and this is exactly the wavelength of the reflection from the um the reflector behind the retina of the reindeer, yep. uh, which gives the photons a second chance of going through the through the retina, uh, that reflector called the tapetum lucidum, the shining carpet behind the eye. We don't have them in humans, mm-hmm. but they have them in all uh, many animals, including all the all the bovines and uh, the ungulates. And um
0: if I remember correctly, there are pictures of this structure in the paper, and they are absolutely stunning.
1: Uh, they're stunning. Yes, they they. The uh, the twilight blue is is really quite something. Yeah, and this is you know it's fun to observe. And um, also the the other phenomenon that you can see at that time is if you look if you have a clear sky. Let me let me just emphasise that for the twilight blue, the blue hour. It doesn't matter whether the that, the, the sky is clear or not. It's always blue mm-hmm. because at uh, twilight because this ozone acts like a colour filter arching oh. over the sky and. Um, uh you uh, it 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 just changes all the incoming light to blue uh and so unlike the daytime sky when you only see the blue when when the sky is clear at twilight uh, the sky is always blue so the reindeer have to live uh 8 or 10 hours a day under this um rather low but significant uh blue illumination and this was the cause of the presumably the cause of their adaptation. They changed their reflector from a sort of golden color in the summer uh, to a blue color in the winter. We worked out exactly how that that change happened. I won't go into that now, but uh, we we understand exactly what the physical change was in the structure of this mirror behind the retina uh, to do this. Um, But yes, uh, and there's an interesting point you make about the intensity and, and the color of the twilight talking to my circadian uh, biologists and physiobiologists, um, they think that that change in color at twilight is perhaps the strongest uh, clearest most reliable signal uh, for this setting the circadian clock the brightness of the sky is very unreliable because it's so dependent on atmospheric conditions and so on and so forth. But the color the colour change always happens. And uh, that's a very, very powerful, reliable uh, signal of the time of day to set the circadian clock.
0: Yeah, I believe there are actually cells if i remember correctly the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells that are yeah, that, that that's right yes that directly, those are the ones that
1: assess.
0: yeah they 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 assess the um the color temperature so that uh that you see a lot of people now in the health and wellness uh space saying how important it is to get at least 10 to 15 minutes of early am light mm. and then uh light On the horizon as the sun is setting as they are the most important times of the day to set the clock um and i think that's an incredibly powerful tool to use and um yeah like you said with with all of these um circadian guys they they know that that's that's the prime time i mean also getting bright light during the day the brightness is is also a factor but i think these these uh color temperatures that you see in the early morning and late afternoon are uh, very important uh, signals for the, for the eyes and the brain.
1: Yeah well I mean let's let's try and unpick that a bit. There's a lot going on here and I think we have to be careful about uh, uh, the different things that are going on. The circadian business is to do with controlling the, the functions of your body at different times of day and so on and, and there's a huge amount of research that goes on on in that area. And uh, I told the, the person I speak to is someone called Ma, uh, Manuel Spitchen, who was at Oxford until recently is now in in Tübingen and, and Munich working on this. He's the guy who organized the, the summer school that I went to this this summer. And he was doing very interesting experiments on this uh, circadian uh, switch to do with the blue twilight. And he was looking at the reaction of eyes to absorption in the in the at slightly longer wavelengths around 490, 500 nanometers uh, that interacts uh, in, in, in the melatonin uh, business and effect of that on, on the eye and also the effect of deeper blue light on the blue cones. And so the, the, the melatonin process goes on in these uh, ganglion cells. And the, the deep blue process goes on in the cones in the blue cones. And he was looking at the reaction uh, to, to the cone signal and the ganglion cell signal. And they work in opposition to one another. Now, I won't try and explain that to you in detail because he's the expert and I'm not sure that I could explain it carefully. But they had the, the, those two signals had opposite effects on your pupil dilation. Hmm. And uh, I think the story went that this, this opposition between these two signals at different blue wavelengths produce this very strong trigger for the setting of the circadian clock. So there's a lot going on with melatonin and circadian processes uh, to do with the quality of the light in the blue, um, which is all very interesting and needs to be communicated uh, uh, more widely between them and other biologists, I'm sure. But I'd like to I'd like to emphasize that that set of processes is somehow distinct from the pure interactions of photons with biochemistry with individual molecules that we're talking about uh, with the red light and the blue light and the reactive oxygens. Now, the way of making the reactive oxygens from the blue light that yep. you mentioned, you know, this fact that this blue visible light not not far ultraviolet light that that has this effect when you when you excite a porphyrin uh with blue light uh you 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 change the uh you, you you induce an electronic transition within the porphyrin to a higher excited state in fact with blue light i think you excite to the second electronic level and uh that Excitation can um, result in a, a, a radiationless transfer to another higher level, a bit lower down, uh, which is metastable and it hangs around for a while. And while it's hanging around in that excited state, this porphyrin can interact with an oxygen molecule and can change the uh the the, the excited state of an oxygen molecule from a triplet state to a singlet state so this is a quantum mechanical process mm-hmm. that happens when oxygen and porphyrin molecules come close together and uh, this can create singlet oxygens which are known to be very highly reactive and these are the these are the reactive oxygens that in the early days of photodynamic therapy when people were killing cancer tumor cells with with light yep. this was the reactive oxygen, the singlet oxygen that they produced using porphyrins and blue light. Yeah, right. Now, that was the early experiments going on in this field. And uh, the, the problem was that they couldn't penetrate the blue light. The blue light wouldn't penetrate into the tumours. So it was very hard to um, to get the reaction occurring within the tumour cells so you could kill them. It tells the cells, it doesn't it doesn't burn the cells, it tells them to commit suicide. <laughs> So, um, so what we're doing with the blue light, we're, we're generating, through the oxygen, we're generating reactive oxygens uh, that are potentially damaging. I mean, the reactive oxygens are used for other things. They're used for signaling between cells and so mm-hmm. on. So they're the central part of the biological process. But you get too many of them, they do too much damage. And so that, that's a problem. So we, we do know there's a pathway in the blue Uh, which is a sensitive function of wavelength. It's just in this range in the deep blue, where you can excite the porphyrin, and uh, you can produce a reactive oxygen. Now, there's some subtleties here, which (laughs) I'll I'll try and explain. But um, in mitochondria, uh, we know that mitochondria synthesize heme. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to synthesize heme, you need to have a, a precursor molecule, uh, which is something called protoporphyrin, protoporphyrin 9. Mm-hmm. So this is a this is a porphyrin that doesn't have a metal in the middle. Now to make heme, you have to add iron into the into the, there's, a, there's a there's an enzyme that does that. That's, so that's how you go off and synthesize heme. That same protoporphyrin molecule is the immediate precursor to chlorophyll. So in chlorophyll, porphyrin like uh, protoporphyrin-like heme, uh, but instead of having an iron, it has a magnesium in the centre. So this protoporphyrin uh, molecule is the, the, the precursor to both heme and chlorophyll, The Colours of Life. There's was a wonderful book by
0: Wilhelm uh, right.
1: about uh, about porphyrins. It's so presumably
0: that per- protoporphyrin-9 is uh, highly conserved um, from many many millions of
1: years ago absolutely absolutely yes yes absolutely and it's it's it was re- you know it's it's a photoactive molecule and it was realized by the photodynamic therapists that you know this was a they needed photoactive molecules because this photoactive molecule when it's excited produces reactive oxygen so it's this porphyrin that produces the reactive oxygen it's not the hemoglobin or the chlorophyll itself so much it's this precursor, uh, porphyrin, that is such a a generator of the reactive oxygens. And it explains in this book exactly how it happens. It's rather elegant, but it's, you know, it's deep quantum mechanics in a way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so we know that mitochondria at some time in their life cycle will contain protoporphyrin because they use it to generate in in We don't know exactly what time of day that happens. Uh, those experiments ought to be done uh, by somebody possibly by us uh, but it's um, <laughs> we're not terribly well equipped to do that but um, we know that that protoporphyrin is present and it's we assume that while that protoporphyrin is present within the mitochondrion it's very sensitive to uh, to blue light and so if we shine blue light on 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 a mitochondrion while it's going through this process it will cause damage
0: do you have an inkling when the mitochondria will have the highest concentrations of this protoporphyrin
1: well i i mean i think we, we rather naturally assume that it's in night time because might, we know the mitochondria kind of restructure themselves and rebuild themselves all the time but they probably do this at night uh, and when they're not expecting any blue light it's a safe time for them to do this so we we, we assume that it happens at night so now we start shining blue light on everything at night yeah uh, we're, we're we're doing a lot of damage and this is this is probably uh, the dominant mechanism for the blue light problem it's the fact that we're shining it's not the blue light itself if you do this at daytime it's balanced by other processes especially in the red but if you shine blue light on uh, on mitochondria at night uh you're not doing it any favors. And um, this is probably the origin of the problem.
0: I was going to say, you know, it sounds like, uh, sounds like uh, from a very, very, uh, from a one foot view that blue light is bad, full stop. But clearly we get lots of blue light during the day from the sun. But uh, it's the dose that makes the poison and presumably that red light um, particularly in the, in the near infrared is going to be balancing the single, any single oxygen that is made in that way. Um, you know, I, i I think I've, I've read, it might be in that, uh, Zimmerman paper where, um, the near infrared sort of acts as like an antioxidant, um, it has an antioxidant mechanism sort of built in. Um, so yeah, that, that balance seems to be very, very important.
1: I think I think that's right, and I think that's a picture which is beginning to clarify. I'm not sure that anyone understands the all the mechanisms, all the actual biochemical, physical mechanisms that are contributing to this process. But yeah, if we if we have a sort of mid mid conversation recap and summary, yep. I think the yep. point is that the point is that we've evolved over we, including pre pre mammals, you know, we've life has evolved for the last two and a half billion years ever since oxygen entered the atmosphere. We've evolved to live with oxygen in the atmosphere. And you know, oxygen up until that time, it had been extremely toxic to, to life forms. So life forms had to get used to having oxygen in the atmosphere. And of course, the oxygen was produced as a waste product from photosynthesis. And so the photosynthetic, um, organisms, the plants and the cyanobacteria, as their precursor and so on, lived with oxygen, and they lived with the production of reactive oxygens, which was associated with the photosynthetic process. So we've lived with this. And we've lived with sunlight and and thermal light sources over these uh, billions and and millions of years. And uh, we've adapted to the dangers and the dangers are associated with with oxygen, and so you know we've we entered the last century uh, with a with a a, a a valid balance of light and oxygen in life and in our own lives, and um, this balance seems to be uh, associated with the damaging effects of the blue light on one hand, which we've just discussed. And the mediating effects of the red light, which we haven't yet discussed in any in any detail. Uh, but the fact that if you look at the spectrum of the sun and the other, other hot sources, the, the, the sources that produce thermal radiation, black body spectra, there's a very good balance between blue and red. In fact, daylight uh, and sunlight have almost equal energies per unit wavelength in, in uh, 420 nanometers and 670 nanometers. Yeah. So they're very well balanced. And then we started saying, uh, well, it's very wasteful to uh, generate all our light using thermal sources because most of the energy comes out in the infrared. So we better think of something better. And so the lighting engineers first of all thought about fluorescent tubes, uh, which work in a very different way from a, a, glowing, lo- a glowing filament. And so they produce Um, fluorescent tubes, which I think are generally acknowledged to be horrible to work under. Um, They don't have any, well, they have very little red light and they don't have any red light near 670 nanometers. Uh, And so, um, you know, they have quite strong blue light. Um, So they're, they're kind of uncomfortable. Nobody was really sure why, but they were kind of uncomfortable to live under. People felt terrible when they walked out of a whole day working in a factory they flicker like mad as well and they flicker as well all kinds of things are wrong with those. and um then they thought oh well we we can do better than fluorescent tubes we can make leds light emitting diodes and then the japanese won this nobel prize in 2014 for the the wonderful blue led which was going to revolutionize lighting throughout the world which unfortunately it has Mm. (laughs) and this was a mistake i mean they didn't i mean it's not a mistake made by the guys, the physicists who won the Nobel Prize, because it's a wonderful invention, you know, physically, it's a wonderful invention has yeah. many uses, yeah. but to use it for lighting is a disaster. And, um, it produces extremely strong blue light, uh, which is its only product, only light product. All the other colors are produced by phosphors inside the structure of the, of, of the light of the, of the bulb, uh, which produce the other colors. But because, Lighting engineers quite reasonably thought that, well, we don't want to waste any energy, so we'll only produce visible light in our devices. And these LEDs are extremely good at producing only visible light. They don't produce any ultraviolet and they don't produce any infrared and they're extremely efficient at producing white light, uh, which costs very little to run, which means that councils buy them and they make them far too bright. We don't need, you know, we can reduce them by a factor of 10 without you know, damaging their effects. So, really produces much too much white light, which contains this enormous blue peak at a wavelength which doesn't exactly coincide with the protoporphyrin absorption, uh, but it's close enough. And both absorption and emission bands are so wide that they are very significantly overlap. And uh, you know, I can't emphasize too strongly that this is a mistake, and it has to be changed. It has to be changed. We can't continue using these very white uh, lamps. We talked a bit about color temperature early on. The color temperature of the the light outside my window at the moment is 4,000 Kelvins, Mm -hmm. which means that that blue peak is extremely strong. If you buy a a light bulb in the store and take it home, don't buy a 4,000 Kelvin light. Buy a a 3,000 or a 2,700 Kelvin lamp, which has a much weaker blue peak and much stronger um emission of the other colors in the, in the in the visible spectrum but none of these leds contain significant um infrared light and i think this is a fundamental problem i think this is what we have to change and it's, it's not a problem for the lighting manufacturers they can easily make uh, lamps which, which include significant infrared emission uh by the measure of efficiency of producing a visible light, uh, producing only visible light, which you can see with your with your eyes, they'll be less efficient, but they'll be considerably more efficient at making you feel better and and not killing you. Um, so this is a no. Sir, I'm serious. No, I, mean, this I know. Is slow, I know. This is a slow death. The reactive oxygens that are produced by blue light are the same as the reactive oxygens produced by Chernobyl radiation. It's the part. same process that kills you. Okay. I
0: genuinely believe that the biggest um, public health issue we're facing right now is is our lighting. Uh, I think it is. It uh, is it's uh, without a doubt. And um, like you said before, it not only it not only affects the circadian system, but it's also causing direct damage. So you've got these two two pathways in which it's absolutely destroying us. Um, yes. And. Uh, I know I asked this, I asked Glenn, you know, what, what, mm. well, what are you, what are you looking to do? Like, what are you moving towards? And And he basically said, what I want to have on my, um, on my tombstone is that, that we, we changed public lighting. We, we got them to fix the mistake. Mm. Uh, and that was a very, very powerful message to me that, uh, you know, it really is that big of a problem. Uh, it's not, it's not minor, you know, um, and
1: in, The insects that we use on these experiments are fruit flies, okay? Maybe we shouldn't do animal experiments, but then we use fruit flies, okay? If you shine blue light on fruit flies, uh, first of all, they don't have any energy left. They can't climb up the, the cells of their, the, 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 the tubes that we're, we, we put them in. And um, if you shine too much blue light on them, they die. But it, anyway, it reduces their lifetimes. If you shine red light on them, uh, they have loads of energy and uh, they, they live longer. Um, the insects we're killing the insects around the planet by leaving these bright white lights on all night. And uh, I, I you know I, I can't say whether this is the major cause cause of the insect loss around the world. It's probably associated with insecticides as well, but the light certainly isn't helping and it could be a very significant factor in, in killing the insects around the world. And all we need to do is to repair the balance between the spectral colours of the light that's emitted by the devices we use at, light, at night. Now, this is not—I I hate to use this phrase because it's so silly—but it's not rocket science. <laughs> It's—you it, know—it's easy to do. I mean, yeah. The manufacturers can do it at the drop of a hat. You know, they may produce devices which are slightly less efficient and they may cost a little bit more, but you know they can do it and they'll save the planet this is called by, i heard the expression once this is the new asbestos the the white leds of the new asbestos we're going to have to root them out of buildings and change everything uh, before they kill us yeah uh, so we feel very strongly about this but um that, i mean that's the that's in a way the fundamental driver but i mean i'm particularly interested in the in the processes that contribute to this problem. I mean I I now I'm not equipped as a as a as a biologist uh, or a biochemist but I do think very broadly and deeply about this and I think the evolutionary connections are very important. It's not only the evolutionary connection with the chloroplasts and the mitochondria which go back to the you know the first eukaryotic cell it's other chemicals for we've mentioned uh, the melatonin is a very ancient molecule. It pre, it way pre, predated the, uh, the, the the first eukaryotic cell. So this this molecule goes way back in evolutionary history. And as you as you hinted before, it's a very powerful antioxidant itself, and it seems to stimulate the production of other antioxidants as well. And I, I remember watching a, another one of these uh, YouTube videos by um, uh, uh, Professor Schult, S E H, uh, uh, can't remember how it's spelled, uh, who um, who has been pushing this idea of uh, the effects of light on 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 health, and he likened this to um, an engine. If you think of the if you think of the mitochondrion as an as an engine producing energy for your cells. Yeah, Uh, when it works hard, uh, you have to cool it, because otherwise it slows down and and stops. And the analogy is that, you know, as it's working, it produces lots of these reactive oxygens as a byproduct of actually producing the the ATP, the, the, the chemical energy that is needed by all the cells in the body. And the coolant is the antioxidant which mops up these reactive oxygens. Now, this comes to the area which I I think is very interesting at the moment. And I I have to admit that I don't understand exactly what's happening. I'm not sure that anyone understands exactly what's happening. But in your favorite paper that you you pointed out, I I sent it to you yesterday, I'm glad you already had it. But yeah, um, it, it seems that the infrared light somehow stimulates the production of melatonin within the mitochondria. And, um, you know, there are various references in these papers, which point to the fact that this happens, but I've not been able to find or figure out the actual physical biochemical process uh, that links the infrared radiation with the stimulation of melatonin production. Um, so I don't think you have any ideas about this, but
0: yeah. Well, I found um, today that uh, last month, um, Ryder and Zimmerman published a paper that I think directly looks at that question. Um, right. Okay. And they they talk about how uh, sunlight and exercise both increase mitochondrial production of melatonin um, because of the uh, r- the excess reactive oxygen species that that generates, and if you uh, put rats in a very stressful situation during their uh, pineal melatonin peak, all of that pineal melatonin disappears from the blood very quickly because it's gone straight into the cells to um, yeah. to prevent the damage from the reactive oxygen species. So uh, I think they're pushing now uh, not only this idea that blue light should be avoided at night, but that... Um, bright sunlight and exercise should be um, should be you should expose yourself to those during the day to help upregulate your melatonin production your mitochondrial uh, melatonin pool and I'm not sure how that translates to greater peaks of melatonin uh, at night when you're asleep Uh, apparently it does though I'm not sure how trustworthy or how Mm -hmm. many um of those studies have been repeated, but it seems as though exposure to these red light panels does increase um, nocturnal melatonin secretion from the pineal gland. Um, I'm not sure how that really happens. Um, Scott Zimmerman seems to be um, pretty confident that that's how it works. When I asked Russell about this, Russell seemed slightly more apprehensive to say that's exactly what's happening. Mm. Uh, Classic, you know, um, scientists uh, being very reluctant to say 100%. It does appear that that's happening, but he was a little bit more reluctant saying, yeah, I think we still need to do a few more studies and and figure this out a little bit more. But um, I mean, I've probably not come across anyone who hasn't benefited sleep-wise from exposing themselves to 660, 670 um, Mm. and greater nanometer light, particularly at night. Um so clearly there's something going on I'm not sure if we understand what what it is but um yeah they they published a a, a new paper like a month ago uh,
1: that I okay, think I'll look, that. I I'll look at that i yeah yeah, yeah. So. no that, that, I mean, it is it is fascinating but I I still don't there's no sign of understanding this mechanism what does the light what's the light absorbed by and how does that link to the biochemical changes. Uh, I think that's what we want to, that's what we want to understand. And I, there's, there's a way of describing this, um, which is well understood in, in 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 photosynthesis, you want what's called an action spectrum, you want to you want an experiment that allows you to shine light of different wavelengths, different colours on a biological system, and a metric to record what happens within the biological system. And uh, a lot of work gone into this in photosynthesis, and you get special photosynthetic lights which shine uh, the most appropriate wavelengths onto the onto the plant to to either make it grow or make it flower or make it fruit or or whatever. So we need an ax, an action spectrum for light on animals as well as plants uh, of all kinds. You know anything from yeasts to humans. And, um, you know, have been attempts to do this. There was a, a Russian lady called Karu, I think who, who worked extensively on this idea of a biological, uh, action spectrum. Um, I and she uh, discovered that
0: cytochrome C oxidase had the absorption spectrum in the, yeah. Had, had a, yes, that's right.
1: Um, whether that's, uh, I think there are probably a number of different processes that contribute to this overall effect of the red light. And I think, in my view, the the way to think about the red light is not so much that it it it, it results in one particular biophysical, biochemical process, but the fact that red light can penetrate uh, living tissue, plants and animals. So we have between about 600 nanometers and 900 nanometers where water kind of takes over in the absorption. Uh, We have this uh, fairly broad range of wavelengths where bodies and plants are relatively transparent. And uh, in the paper you were referring to, there's a lot of discussion now of the way that this red light can penetrate into the human body and the way it can penetrate into the brain and the way it penetrates deeply and reaches a a large fraction of the number of the cells in your body. So I think that wavelength range is absolutely critical for uh, the way the light interactions occur. The eye is unique in that we can get blue light into the eye. So the blue light process is naturally studied in the eye where it reaches the mitochondria. Um, It will reach mitochondria in the skin. In fact, I think Glenn probably in his interview, probably mentioned to you this experiment that was done with sunbeds converted to blue rather than ultraviolet sunbeds It's a German experiment that was done a number of years ago. Um, and they looked at the they put young active people in sunbeds and shone blue light on them for a while and looked at their blood circulation and blood pressure and so on. And there was a dramatic reduction in blood pressure in these people in these blue sunbeds
0: a reduction
1: a reduction in blood pressure right and these the, the researchers thought this is great we found a way of reducing blood pressure now we think what happened in this experiment was they were by producing reactive oxygens they were inducing hypoxia in these uh in in these in these in these people yeah and uh, blood vessels were dilating to increase the blood flow to get more oxygen into the cells. Interesting. So they're actually not killing these people, but they were damaging these people with the blue light and the reaction was to lower the blood pressure and try and get more blood, uh, more, more, uh, uh, in, in, into the, into the cells to, uh, to respire properly. Well, this is and, something um, that
0: I heard you talk about in a, in an interview that I saw, uh, there's a video of you on YouTube, yeah. Um, where you talk about this idea that excessive blue light has a relationship with uh, with this hypoxia, like not yes. not allowing um, oxygen to be available. And, um, <laughs> I work as a pulmonary technician, so I work with yeah. a lot of people who have, um, you know, sometimes chronic hypoxia, but at least um, transient when when we do testing. Um, and I wonder because we're under four. Four four thousand Kelvin um, blue LEDs. I wonder if uh, being in a room like that is not very friendly for people who um, have respiratory issues.
1: Uh, I bet you. Yeah, I bet you're right. Yes. Right.
0: Okay. So it, it is having that much of a difference um, as an impact rather um, mm-hmm. on the way that our cells are being oxygenated.
1: Also, I think. Um, <laughs> Switching to very fit people, who are sports sports people who are working, uh, who are who are playing sports at night yes. on the floodlight. These floodlights seem to tend to be very high temperature LEDs. I mean, yep. they've just they just put some four thousand five hundred Kelvin LEDs at the, in the Bath University sports pitches, and uh, these are probably damaging for the uh, for for the sports people because. This is certainly not helping them uh, respire uh, at night. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there need to be experiments with much lower color temperature floodlighting for, for sports activities at night. And there need to be experiments. Uh, uh, I know people are thinking about doing experiments like this. It's not very easy to do because if you try and test uh, people after they played a game of football or something late at night, <laughs> then I would be very willing to cooperate. I don't think, but um, I think this must play a role. It's very likely will play a role uh, yeah, right. in, in performance. So, and and it seems to me that as, as you as you suggest, this production of reactive oxygens somehow glues these oxygens down and stops them getting to the places they have to be to produce to take the electrons from the electron transport chain and make ATP. I think you're blocking blocking the oxygen flow to the right places. Exactly where and how you're doing that, I'm not really uh, capable of of figuring out. But I think there is a process that's stopping the oxygen getting to the right places. Mm. And I think conversely, uh, I get the impression that um, the red light may be actually, doing the opposite, it may be freeing up the electron transport chain in some way, uh, which is allowing the ATP production to, uh, to occur uh, more, more, more efficiently, more quickly. And some of the experiments, some of the animal experiments that have been done, uh, have shown that um, in fact, Glenn mentioned recently, he's done some experiments this way where he's he's seen the results of experiments that have shown this, uh, that these animals um, Lose weight when you shine red light on them because they're respiring much more quickly. They're being much more energetic. They're being much more efficient in 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 using their uh, their food uh, to respire and produce ATP, and they lose weight. And uh, that's not damaging for them. In fact, it's good for them because they don't become obese. So this is another potential application of red light: is to um, increase uh, people's ability to um, to respire properly, yeah. and, uh, and and, and uh, affect levels of obesity. So there's another potential implication here. I think. Mm. In fact, um, I don't. I, I, if we have time, I'd, I'd like to come back to a couple of experiments which were done um, in the U.S. at Columbia over the last decade uh, by somebody called Ilyas Washington. I came across these, Glenn showed me these papers um, some while ago, and I got very excited by them because they were experiments on nematode worms where they were um, shining red light on nematodes and monitoring their ATP production. Mm-hmm. And uh very nice series of experiments. Uh, and their conclusion was that if they fed them on chlorophyll rich diets, uh, which is probably the norm for nematodes in the soil—they uh, were eating plant, uh, you know, decaying plant matter. If if they were on chlorophyll-rich diets, uh, they, the application of 670 nanometer radiation to them for a while, would increase the ATP production. Then they did the sums, and it sounded very convincing. Uh, but the hypothesis was that the chlorophyll was coming through the gut wall and was, uh, you know, getting into the cells and into the mitochondria, and I don't think anyone believed this. And I think these papers were not referenced; they were ignored. Right. And um, and the reason was, I, I understand that the biologists thought it was impractical to get chlorophyll breakdown products into the mitochondria. Now, I was very struck by these papers papers because they really showed all the results that we observed ourselves in in flies and so on, and went into a great deal of detail about um, how the process worked. They did fluorescence spectroscopy of the the mitochondria, and there was an emission peak in the uh, fluorescence spectrum uh, which looked to be associated with a chlorophyll breakdown product. So they had a lot of evidence that what they were saying was sensible and correct. And I looked about this, I looked at this for a long time, and I, you know, I looked at the sizes of the molecules and whether they could possibly get into the through the porins into the into the insides of mitochondria. But you know, it's very hard for me to judge what the possibilities were. And then I was talking to one of the photodynamic therapists at UCL who right. who, who you know has done a lot of work on producing um uh, photoactive molecules that work with red light because this is what they want to. This is what they need to penetrate cancer tumors and get the light in to do the uh, to do the, the cell suicide business. <clears throat> and he pointed me to a paper which I looked at, and this showed uh, 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 a fluorescent peak at the same place as the uh, as, as the one that. Washington had recognized in the in the nematodes. Uh, but this was produced by um, what's called a photo product of protoporphyrin. If you shine visible light on protoporphyrin, you convert some of it to something called protoporphyrin. I call it PPP for short, uh, which is a chlorine and absorbs at 670s and has a, a, a fluorescence peak, which was as far as I could tell, I could measure this in my, uh, you know, I could measure this in 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 porphyrin. So I could, and I compared it to his uh, uh, fluorescence peak, and it was identical essentially. And uh, the thought struck me that if you had protoporphyrin in the mitochondria, and the mitochondria had been subject to visible light, it could have generated. Um, this PPP within the mitochondrion itself. So you didn't have to import it. it was actually generated inside. And this could act as an antenna pigment, which would absorb 670 radiation, and possibly feed it into the electron transport chain. And this is where I get lost because I can't do experiments. But it's very analogous to photosystem two in photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. You have an antenna pigment in the, in the chloroplasts, you absorb the 670, 680 nanometer light. Uh, it Produces an exciton, which gets transferred to the reaction center in the mitochondria in the in the chloroplast, and produces the, you know, pushes the electrons up the electron transport chain. Um, why couldn't this happen in uh, in mitochondria? Um, now, mitochondria obviously closely related to chloroplasts. Whether they have anything which could react, which could act as a reaction center, I don't know. But you know this could be a process that could work in a way which is analogous to photosynthesis. But instead of going on to use this uh, uh, this potential across the membrane uh, membrane barrier in the uh, in the in, in the mitochondria, and instead of using that to go on to so photosystem two and make sugars and so on, you, you could actually just use it to make ATP. So you know maybe that, I'm not saying this is right, but maybe there's there's a core of an idea there that. You can actually generate a photo uh, 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 an absorber in the mitochondrion, which may be able to transfer photon energy in some way into the electron transport chain. So, if Sorry, I'm hearing uh, you
0: correctly, uh, um, you're saying something along the lines of we can generate energy directly from light uh, in a in a somewhat similar way that um, that plant cells uh, generate light uh, generate energy well, from light.
1: Maybe, but I'd qualify that by saying it's not the hypothesis that you can't. Perhaps you, we know you can't generate enough energy from light yeah. uh, in, in bodies, because we use energy far too quickly. I mean, it's a, it's not feasible to hypothesise that you're generating a significant fraction of energy. But maybe what you're doing is freeing up the electron transport chain. It's more like a lubricant mm-hmm. on the electron transport chain. To allow it to produce, to allow it to respire more efficiently. So I think what I'm saying is, it's it's a it's a in a way it's a catalytic pro- process. It's not a fundamental source of energy, but it's a way of making the respiratory production of energy within the electron transport chain work more efficiently. You see what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's not you know you're not going to. It's not a significant amount it. of energy yeah yeah. So um, just backtracking to these chlorophyll metabolites. Um, I know there wasn't very much follow-up um, from that initial paper that sort of made the case that you could generate energy uh, from these uh, chlorophyll metabolites interacting mm. with light. Um, I've asked one of Glenn's colleagues about this, and he was unsure. He said it would be it would be great if that was true. Um, I, I personally, I take a little bit of chlorella before I do any sort of red light therapy, if I'm going to the sauna or anything, just, just in case that is true. Um, but, uh, I don't know. It seems, it seems like it could, could be possible that there are molecules from the things that we eat that do make it into the cell that interact with light. Um, from my understanding, there are, there are things in thing uh, like parsley and, um, coriander that. Uh, these solarins that interact with light and they can make you a little Mm. bit more uv sensitive um but it seems seems quite plausible to me
1: well i'm not not proposing this terribly seriously but I, i think it opens up an idea that um we should look at processes like this and again it's a it's a broader view there may be a mechanism there may be a mechanism which somehow accelerates the production of melatonin in the mitochondria with infrared light, maybe a broad spectrum infrared light, I don't know. But that seems to be uh, uh, established, or beginning to be established anyway, although we don't know exactly how it happens. Um, but that would that would provide a, a, a process a mechanism by which you produce antioxidants, which countered the, the reactive oxygens that were being produced by the, the energy generation process. So that's one process that could operate with with this red light that penetrates the body. There may be other more direct processes like this, uh, which we don't yet know about or haven't yet established, yeah. which, were, which work in a much more analogous way with, with photosynthesis. That's I think that's what I'm proposing. And all I'm saying is that I, I've seen one mechanism where this could conceivably work. And I've done experiments with this on on you know in, 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 I'm in I don't have a lab here I have a study which has a, a square meter or so of space to work on. But I, I, I did some experiments where I took hens egg shells, which contain lots and lots of protoporphyrin, yeah, uh, and shone light on them for half an hour or an hour, and then looked at their fluorescence spectrum. And they have a you know if you if you take a box of uh, brown eggs into a dark room and shine a UV light on it, they glow brilliant red as you have you done that experiment, Evan? I haven't, but I have seen it. You must do it. Do it. It's it is spectacular. Right. If you take a box of eggs into a into a, into a dark room and shine a, a long wavelength infrared light on it, they glow a brilliant red. And this, this is protocorphine fluorescing. Yeah. But if I if I pre uh, Excited it, those those eggs by shining light on them uh, before I did the fluorescence experiment, a new fluorescence line appeared in the spectrum, which coincided with uh, Washington's fluorescence line and the fluorescence line that comes from the photodynamic therapist paper. Uh, so I had generated photo protoporphyrin PP yeah. in the eggshell by shining light on it. In fact, I could generate, I could write onto the eggshell, I took a, a multiple red laser dot, and shone it onto the eggshell, and then subsequently photographed it under UV light, and you could see the spots. So I could write onto the eggshell, I could have written a message onto the eggshell with, with light. That's um, incredible. So in in, in the eggshell, I could produce PPP from mm-hmm. and. There's no reason why that couldn't happen inside the mitochondrion. You have the protoporphyrin. if you have the light, uh, you can do it. So, and, and we know this absorbs in the, uh, we know this absorbs like chlorophyll. Um, so, you know, that's one mechanism, you know, maybe it's not right. It probably isn't right, but uh, I just thinking in that way, I think there may be a number of mechanisms by which light interacts with a biomolecules in particular ways and we don't, don't yet know what all of those are but they may be there and they should be looked for and i think one way of trying to find them is to is to try and get an action spectrum of light interacting with cells which contain mitochondria uh, at different wavelengths mm-hmm. and that's what we're doing at the moment. but we're building an experiment uh, in city university at the moment uh, i found an engineer who was willing to collaborate with us he's given me some lamps and gratings and so on so we've constructed a, a prototype uh, device where we can put samples of yeast or bacteria under a different wavelengths along a projected spectrum at about environmental light levels you know the light levels are difficult to determine but we're working at levels that you would get from normal daylight not much brighter not much fainter but yeah. the sort of daylight not direct sunlight levels but daylight the, the light you get from the sky uh so that, that's where we're doing these experiments Or start these experiments um and that's another attempt to do what kuru did uh, uh some years ago and, and try and get a, an an action spectrum of potentially different processes going on in, in this range of the the spectrum where the body is relatively transparent mm-hmm. So, I think this is the way to go is to is to try and dig a little bit deeper into which wavelengths do what and try and see the range of interactions that can occur between light and and biomolecules. Yeah, um, that's
0: that's fascinating. I think there are a lot of people out there who just assume that we make energy from light because you know you sort of feel better when you go out in the sun, you know you feel more energetic. so. <laughs> I yeah. think people already take it for granted that even if we don't know the mechanism, we certainly are generating some sort of energy from sunlight um, who knows well if we can take if we
1: can take those people and convince them that blue light is not helping uh, that will be a move in the right direction yes
0: <laughs> yeah that's that's a tough one to get everyone to change all yeah. their lights yeah. in their houses yeah. and workplaces, but we'll get there,
1: yeah, so um. I think I think we've kind of covered the, the, the balance between the blue light and the red light. There's yeah. another thing I should say, which Red might, which um, Glenn may have said to you. I have listened to Glenn's interview with you, but he may have said to you, I can't remember. And that is, it seems that the blue light interactions with mitochondria work on a different time scale from the red light interactions. So we are dealing with a... It may be a different part of the same process, it may be different processes, but it takes longer to produce a a reaction on biological cells with with blue light than it does to get them to react to red light, which is kind of indicating that we're looking at either a different stage of an interaction or a different kind of interaction with these two colors. So although they seem to balance one another in, 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 in effect, one mitigates the effects of the other, they're not working at exactly the same time scale. Mm. Which you know, makes sense if you think what we've been talking about. The generation of react- the reactive oxygens is likely to be different from the generation of antioxidants. I mean there are different processes. So it, 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 you know, it doesn't, it's not nonsense. It doesn't make it does make some sense. But um, that's one of the that's one of the observational elements that we have to fold into studying what's going on.
0: Yeah. I think there's just so much that is going to come out in the next decade about, um, how biological systems interact with light. Um, hopefully there's a lot more people who are looking into the, the dangers of blue light and trying to get, um, the big companies to change them. Um, like you are. It is
1: is happening. Yes, it is happening. I see evidence that people are beginning to take note now. I mean, I talk to a lighting engineer regularly, a lighting engineer in, in Silicon Valley, who's building um, multi-LED light sources to dial up different spectra. So he's using these, he's selling these to work in labs and work in medical environments where right. you can adjust the lighting in detail uh, for different kinds of uh, conditions, by uh, uh, human conditions, therapies, and so on. And he's very helpful. And we, we talk a lot about these issues. And he's obviously in contact with the lighting industry. And he notices that people are beginning to take note of of what's going on. And, uh, I think the change will happen, but it's, it's like a huge oil tanker, isn't it? It takes yeah. a, the industry is a big industry and it takes a lot of effort to change them even slightly in direction. Yeah. I've, uh, often, maybe-
0: I've often wondered also about, you know, animal models, you know, where they put rats in, um, in environments that are lit with, completely um artificial light and then they look for health outcomes based on you know what they're eating or any Mm. anything that they're feeding them and they never mention the light and i just Mm. i I often wonder you know they do lots of um you know sort of and i've talked to vitamin d researchers about this how they replicate um the sun in um, models of skin cancer in in rodents and they use these solar simulators and um one of these researchers told me that the uv content of those solar simulators is 10 percent. um hmm. and i thought 10 that's that's probably more than double what we're what we're receiving um hmm. outside and it probably doesn't have well it definitely doesn't have the fire infrared that the, that the sun is having either so you know i often wonder how accurate some of these animal studies are that are completely lit by artificial light
1: uh, i think that's it I think that's a very great problem, and I think we, you know, we were guilty of this in the early days. We were using white LEDs as solar as solar simulators, and we realized that we were completely wrong. This was a crazy thing to do. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there needs to be a lot of tidying up in the way these the way these experiments are done. And I, you know, we're we're not actually working on animals anymore. We're working on we're working on humans or ourselves, and yeah, it, you know, it's, it, it's not possible to get permission to work with blue light. On 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 animals anymore. It's very hard to because it is realised that it's it, it's damaging. So it's um, we have to be very careful. I don't have any experience of all this business, but um, it's uh, yeah. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tidying up that has to be done. But I, I think you're right. It's going to be a very rich field of research mm-hmm. over over the, next, over the next years, and I I think. Can I come back to this question of interdisciplinarity, which I, I think was is just fun.
0: about to say, let's, let's hop yeah. back into, um, why it's so important to share ideas in, in places where you may not be as well versed. Uh, I think sometimes we can find ourselves completely boxed in and, uh, not exposed to any outside, maybe creative ideas that may push, uh, a field forward. So, um, why why have you seen it really important to work with people who are um who are in different fields I do see it as important
1: um and I'm trying to think of the best way I can express this I, I think I think I I've been I've always been interested in uh, I call, I would call it now I wouldn't at the time the big picture story and yep. I spend time uh, some some time talking to kids about the Big History project. You know this project that Bill Gates and uh, David Christian developed of teaching kids the history of the universe rather than the history of the eighteenth century. And um, I feel very strongly that we should bring up our kids with a much broader uh, knowledge of uh, of of what we know. Um, now, I, I think early in school, they get this broad picture to some extent. But later on, there's a lot of specialization. And I think my kids did the European Baccalaureate in, in, when we were living in Munich. And they study nine subjects to school leading age rather than the, the three or so uh, A-levels that people study in Britain. Mm-hmm. And they were told by British universities that they'd have to do remedial years in order to catch up. And that absolutely wasn't true at all. They didn't have to but they had a much broader um, education in, in in different subjects. And I think, especially with history, you know, the history of the universe, we, you know, we can paint a pretty good history of the universe. Okay. We don't know what dark energy and dark matter is, but <laughs> we can paint a pretty good history of the universe from the big bang onwards, right through to the origins of life and uh, and so on. Now, not all of those steps are filled in, but there is a, there's a continuous process of, you know, the Big Bang, uh, the first stars, the origin of the chemical elements in stars, uh, you know, the production of um, organic molecules in space, the formation of planets, the origin of life, and, and, and so on, all the way through a continuous wide angle view. And I have to say that, uh, you know, the origin of the chemical elements is something that is not really taught, I don't think, in, in schools. Where do the chemical elements come from? You know, we now know that the, Big Bang only produces produced uh, hydrogen and helium and a spot of lithium, but where did all the other elements come from? You know, they came from stars and stellar processes. Now, the, the the big paper that addressed that issue was 1955, a paper by Burbage, Burbage, Fowler, and Hoyle, called B squared FH. Have you ever come across this paper?
0: I think you mentioned it to me when we spoke last. Yeah,
1: it's a, it's 107 pages in the Reviews yeah. of Modern Physics. And it does the whole caboodle, you know, or discusses the the the, the details of the origin of all these em- uh, elements in stellar processes and stellar explosions. And um, it's a fantastic story. You know, it's one of the great stories in science, and it's not widely understood by the general public, I don't think, how our elements, I think we should, look, you know, we should certainly learn this at school. It's such an important the origin of the periodic table. It's, it's such an important thing. And I knew all those people, you know, I I, I I knew Fred Hoyle, I knew the boat burbages, and I think I'd met Willie Fowler, I certainly didn't know him well. But... So I'd cast all of those people and uh, it always stuck in my mind, this was a fantastic, uh, this is a fantastic story. And um, but that contributes to this global picture. And it's, you know, the whole thing is a mixture of physics in the early days, then chemistry, uh, in, the, in, in the intermediate days and, and now biology, and you know, it's a real mixture and now it's thoroughly mixed together. So I think one has to get rid of this idea of physics, biology, and chemistry. Now it's all mixed together in some sense, it's all physics, but I wouldn't argue that amongst chemists and <laughs> biology. but you know, in some sense it is because it's all down to quantum mechanical processes and so on, but, um, so I think this broad view is essential. And I, I I appreciate that I've been incredibly fortunate to have a long career in astrophysics. And, you know, use big telescopes around the world use the space telescopes, and, you know, play a role in some of this research along the way. And it's given me a very broad angle view, of course. Uh, and I'm very conscious of that. So when I retired, I, I, I did make a conscious decision decision to break out a little bit and try and understand about the uh, its evolution and biological evolution uh, and, and so on. And this was very much stimulated um, by the, the last couple of years when I was actually working. I supervised or co-supervised uh, a young student from China, who's from Beijing. And he had, was came to us for doing two years of his PhD he came to us with a set of observations of a lunar eclipse made with a two meter telescope in China. Very high quality data. And he used it to study the Earth's atmosphere uh, from the light coming from moon, the moon during lunar eclipse. And we, you know, we we had done some of this before with uh, uh, with with other people. Um, uh, but his, his data were, were extremely high quality. And he wrote a he wrote a wonderful thesis in the end on many techniques of uh, transit spectroscopy, looking at exoplanet atmospheres um, and the, the details of the observational techniques that you needed to use in order to get the right kinds of data, extremely innovative, one of the brightest people I've ever come across. And he went on to work in Heidelberg and Göttingen and now on and postdocs. And now he's gone back to China, but working with him for those last couple of years, really stimulated me to think much more about the Earth and its atmosphere and geology. And uh, so I, I I kind of made a background decision to broaden my areas of interest. And I never thought I would really, you know, I wouldn't actually do these subjects professionally, but I would learn more about them. And, you know, working with Glenn was a step in this process. And, you know, we were working on this, at, you know, at the cutting edge, in, in some sense. Um, But I learned a number of things about the process of doing interdisciplinary research, at least at my age end of the spectrum. It's very hard to do this when you're young, because you're fighting for survival. You have to write papers in your very narrow field in order to get your first postdoc and your first job and so on. So it's very hard to do when you're young, but if you have to retire early. I had to retire fairly early because the European Space Agency kicks people out at sixty <laughs> or sixty-two if you're lucky, um, and uh, so I, I decided to spend my time looking at at least looking at other aspects of of science, and ended up with eyes and vision and mitochondria and light and and, and so on. That was accidental, but um, and I realised that you feel afraid of going into a field where you know, very little, you know, if you walk into a lab where everyone's a, a visual neuroscientist, you think, Oh my God, you know, I, I know nothing about visual neuroscience, they're going to think I'm a complete idiot. Um, but it's not like that. <laughs> you have knowledge that they don't have, and yeah. they have knowledge that you don't have. And that knowledge is at the is, is at the cutting edge. And so you don't have to go back to ground level and work your way up in some sense it's your ignorance it's my ignorance that was the key element in that process yeah because i thought about things in quite different ways i said to glenn do you realize that's the wavelength that chlorophyll absorbs because i knew it was but you know he he may have done he thought about it he hadn't thought about it so you know it's this kind of interaction which is so vital and then subsequently um I was aware that when I was talking to this photogenic therapist who'd been introduced to me by Glenn in UCL, I was talking to him about things that were actually vital for what we were trying to do. And there'd never been this contact before, because he was in another department in a different building, in a different part of London. Yeah, They can't communicate. They don't communicate. They're siloed in very, very narrow fields. And it's very little communication. And I have to say the universities are, are working against this at the moment because because the university is absorbing so many students to get money. They're closing off all the common areas in the university buildings. So, you know, they no longer have um, areas where people can meet for coffee and, uh, you know, talk, different departments can talk to one another. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're shutting the staff canteen. So the, the lecturers and professors sit in their offices, eating sandwiches at lunchtime, so they never communicate. Mm-hmm. so it's very little communication between different branches of science and uh i think this is this has to change and my experience my single experience with working with glenn in uh, in, in ucl is that this is very exciting you know this this idea of putting people an astrophysicist and a visual neuroscientist you know you, you wouldn't dream of it would you um but in fact one of the first people i bumped into when i first went to his building in in next to Moorfields. I looked at the sky. I know you. It's Chris Dainty. He was a he was a he was a an astronomer from I think it was Imperial College. While I was at RG, the Royal Observatory in the in the seventies, developing adaptive optics for for astronomy. So you know, sharpening up the images from ground based telescopes. And now he was working in a department of ophthalmology. ophthalmology uh, doing adaptive optics to for high resolution imaging of the retina a living wow. retina so he could he could counter the you know the motions and the the noise in the in the in 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 the, in the, in, the um, in the imaging of of, of retina and uh, so there we were uh, astronomers together at the RGO in in the 70s sitting in the department of ophthalmology uh, working with light. so it does happen it can happen um, but we have to make it happen more and we have to also dissolve the, uh, the boundaries between the sciences, I think, and uh, 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 try and breed uh, a broader culture of expertise in, in scientists. And I think uh, at my age, it's somewhat easier to do because, you know, there are a lot of retired people around who have a great deal of expertise and, uh, and knowledge in different areas who could come together and tackle some of these problems. If you really wanted to solve a, you know, if, if it were wartime, and you really wanted to solve a problem, you know, Churchill during the war used to grab people from all over the place, stuff them in a room and said, fix the problem.
0: Yeah.
1: And you know, they would do it. And uh, they were a great mixture of different people that people solve crossword puzzles. or you know, build radar sets or whatever, you know, you have to bring them together to solve these these, these fundamental problems. And so I think this is a new way that science uh, could and should develop, and I, I feel I have to say something about my experience of interdisciplinarity. You know, in my experience, my first ever, first author paper in biology, you know, it didn't, I wouldn't say hit the headlines, but it certainly had a significant impact, much more than I would have expected. Yeah. Why is that? It's because, you know, what I said was trivial for, for physicists, but unknown to biologists and, you know, it wasn't my great brilliance at all. It was just bringing these two subjects into contact, which makes the difference. And, uh, you know, it's worth worth thinking about, I think.
0: Oh, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. And I'm sure there are countless stories out there about how innocuous comments from people who aren't entrenched in the field completely changed the way that you might see and think about a topic that you've been working even years on. Um, I know, uh, we spoke a little bit last time about water and, um, and Gerald Pollock, uh, who spent years thinking about where the energy came from that, uh, created this particular type of water. And it was one of his students who was being silly and not doing what he was supposed to do and pointed a lamp at the water during an experiment and, realized that the infrared light from the lamp was what um, caused the water to to make yeah. that change. So yeah. um, I'm sure there's plenty of stories where, um, yes, things like exactly the story that you described where something that was trivial to you uh, really clicked, um, clicked into place uh, thoughts in the minds of the people who've been thinking about it for a very
1: long time. Um, yeah. yeah it does happen it does happen uh, it does happen uh, it does, you know so i'm not saying it doesn't happen it, it happened to raman Ra- when raman discovered raman spectroscopy right.
0: uh,
1: when his student was shining a sunlight through a flask of something and he whipped out his pocket spectroscope. raman li- whipped out his pocket spectroscope and looked at the flask and saw all these lines and uh you know that was it mm-hmm. and uh i love that story and uh you know it is an example that's you know, it's not quite the same, it's not quite so interdisciplinary, but it's keeping your eyes open for unexpected things. And uh, yeah, and I, I've got to, maybe we could finish off, I, I tell you another story about amazing coincidences, which yeah. uh, actually blew my mind. And uh, uh, you know, I am an astronomer, or no, I'm not very actively an astronomer at the moment, I do keep my eye on the literature. And I was uh, I was bowled over to see the, the first images coming from the Webb Telescope mm-hmm. a couple of months ago now. And uh, there, were, there were a batch of them produced in the first week and, and discussed by the President of the United States and so on. Um, but uh, about a week later, they uh, produced an image of a, a galaxy uh, called the Cartwheel. Uh, which, um, of course, I recognized because I had named it the cartwheel uh, with a collaborator of mine in in Australia in 1976. And uh, so this amused me, and um, I wondered why they'd chosen the object. It didn't seem to be an obvious object to choose for one of their early-release observations. But um, I uh, immediately afterwards went on holiday, and while I was on holiday, I received uh, uh, an email from... Uh, somebody I knew from those days, who was a mathematician at MIT, he's still a professor of mathematics at MIT, applied mathematics at MIT, but Al who who is a very well known astronomer, who was really the originator of ideas about um, the dynamics of galaxy interactions. So he was the person who started modeling the interactions between galaxies and produces these wonderful Interacting galaxy um, shapes and t- tidal tails and so on that we will now see with these astronomical pictures. And the story there was that I was working with um, somebody who worked for the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope on Siding Spring in Australia, and I was working at the Anglo Australian Telescope, and you know we were on the same mountain and we 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 knew we knew we knew everyone there and. Uh, and the, the schmidt they just rediscovered this um this galaxy which was in the form of a ring which is extremely unusual and uh they realized that it was a rediscovery because it had originally been discovered by sviki uh, the, the very famous swiss astronomer um, in the 1940s in fact he he mentioned it in a paper in 1941 which is the very first reference about the discovery of this galaxy. And he mused that while he didn't understand how this was produced, it was probably one of the most complex structures that he knew about that needed to be explained by some theory of dynamics or or whatever. It subsequently appeared in a catalogue by Vorontsov Pelyaminov, who was a famous Russian astronomer at the time. And so it was catalogued. Uh, but it was essentially rediscovered when these Schmidt people were looking at their plates every morning, as they always do. And um, so I got together with Tim Harden and, uh, you know, we, we had some time, I had some time on the Anglo-Australian telescope, we had actually a few very good nights, very clear nights. So we observed this and we you know, we, we had, at the time, we had the world's leading electronic uh, detector, spectroscopic detector, because our director was Joe Wampler, who developed the Wampler Robinson scanner, which was one of the very first digital electronic spectroscopic detectors. So we had the four meter telescope and a, a state of the art detector operating. So we did spectroscopy of the various uh, components in the ring and the neighboring galaxies of this uh, cartwheel ring galaxy. And um, while we were writing up the paper, I got a preprint of a theoretical paper uh, by Roger Lins and Al Artumri um, about um, in- interacting galaxies, uh, which actually had a simulation of what would happen if one galaxy interacted with another one by falling directly through the center and out the other side. So it's a very symmetric collision where you come along, come along on the, the axis of the, a spiral galaxy. You drop right through the center and emerge on the other side. Then you had the theoretical predictions of what it would look like and so on. And I looked at this and I thought, golly, this is exactly what we're seeing. So I we we measured the rotation speed of the ring. We measured the um ex- we measured the radial motion of the ring, uh, which was either expansion or contraction. Uh so we had a rotating ring which was either expanding or contracting. We surmised because of the direction of the spokes, which you can see in the world image, that mm-hmm. uh, it was an expanding ring. And, you know, we did some quite a lot of basic calculations about uh what the time scale was, how long it was between the the actual collision itself when the intruding galaxy was in the center and reached where it might be now. And uh Compared that with the timescale of the ring expansion, and they agreed to about three hundred million years. So it looked as if one of the galaxies that nearby was the intruder that had gone through the centre. And uh, you know, we we justified that, and Al Atturay agreed that it was the uh, uh, there was the likely intruder, and you know, it was it, it, we essentially solved the problem at the time. There was one glaring discrepancy. And that was that his models suggested that the mass of the intruder had to be at least a third or a half of the mass of the original cartwheel galaxy before it was stimulated to produce the ring. And uh, it was not clear that this intruding galaxy was massive enough. In fact, it was measured uh, by one of my colleagues at the time later. Uh, and, and the subsequent director of the observatory, they measured the velocity dispersion of the stars in the center of this, in, this proposed uh, uh, intruding galaxy, and it seemed that it wasn't massive, massive enough to cause the interaction. So this was a, a problem that we didn't solve at the time, and it remains a problem. And when the, uh, when the galaxy was, uh, the image was announced by NASA. There was quite a long press release that came with it um it didn't mention us of course um but it did say that there was a more distant galaxy uh, about three times further away which they thought was the intruder uh, which had been proposed before i remember but not with any strong evidence and um so when it was when the, when the image was uh, announced they said the intruding galaxy is not in the in the in the image excuse me um it was it was it was not in the image it was outside the field of view of the image and we thought, oh, I, I thought well it is in the image and Allah wrote me an email and said well you know it is in the image. so Allah and i have been ha- having lots and lots of email exchanges over the last few months and he's rebuilt his models and we're remodeling it now but now that argument's going on but that, the, the, that's an interesting story in itself but the, the real story is that tim harden my collaborator at the time when we left we both left australia subsequently i went off to do my career in in, in in geneva and munich and so on he went off to edinburgh and worked on the technology of um, uh, of infrared instruments and telescopes and unbeknown to me um he was working on the ideas of passively cooling space infrared telescopes because he realized you know to get to these very low temperatures you needed for infrared telescopes, you had to cool them to very low temperatures. And uh you know, a number of observatories have been launched into space with limited amounts of coolant. So the you know the, the, the telescope Herschel, um IRS, um, and so on, um the these would only last for a limited time because you had to cool everything to low temperatures. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he had this idea of using uh, a sun shield and passive cooling of, of the telescope to to reach you know relatively low temperatures not the very coldest temperatures you needed for longer wavelength infrared but certainly for you know near to mid infrared you could cool the telescope enough passively so the story as I uh, as I hear it is that he tried this idea out on the European space Agency and they didn't have any applications for it at the time so they weren't particularly interested. But he took it to NASA. And this must have been in the, in the early 2000s. I'm surmising, I don't know the story in detail, but he took it to NASA and they said, Hey, you know, this is a good idea Maybe we could use, we could use it, we could try it out on Spitzer. And they, well, I must be earlier then they, they tried it out on Spitzer and it obviously worked well enough for them to use this for JWST. So the whole design of JWST with this huge tennis court sized sunshield mm-hmm. and the passive cooling of the telescope to 40 Kelvins came from Tim Harden who worked on the cartwheel <laughs> with wow. me and he and uh, my wife found this she um she googled we were talking about this at the dinner table so she googled Tim Harden to find out what had happened to him I knew that he died in 2009, he had a heart attack and he died in 2009. In 2010, he was awarded a very major NASA engineering award for the design of passively cooled telescopes that they used on the, on the web telescope. And uh, it was a year after his death and it was presented by uh, John Mother, Senior Project Scientist of JWST and the no- Nobel Laureate. Mm-hmm. So this is written up. it's actually on the web, it's written up. this award was given to Tim Harden. So there's this, I think, extraordinary loop, historical loop between the cartwheel and the use of the James work to image the cartwheel as one of its early release observations. And I don't think there was a, an intended connection there, it's just an amazing coincidence. It may be that somebody in NASA said, hey, uh, but I very much doubt that. Because wow. they didn't, I didn't think they knew about our paper at all. But it's it blew my mind at the time. And I, I thought this is just an amazing coincidence. But uh, so now um, we're working we're working quite hard on this now. So the person who measured the velocity dispersion of the intruder and said the um the the, the, the the galaxy was not massive enough, we're in contact with him. In fact I got an email from him this morning. So we're going to look at this whole problem again and try and understand it but I'm I'm pretty sure that we have chosen the right object and we have to understand why it produced such an effect um but uh, that, that's fun so it's 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 an interdisciplinary universe that I live in
0: yeah that's an incredible story I I, I wouldn't have had any idea that um I I'm astonished that that's not on purpose um if, if it's not on purpose it's an amazing coincidence that they chose I, the-
1: I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's a coincidence I'm pretty sure it's a coincidence but I will try and dig up more about the story but because uh, <laughs> yeah, I I right. know I know where the proposal I now know who proposed the cartwheel as a, as a potential target for JWST and it's somebody I think wouldn't know about that coincidence right. so I think it it is a coincidence but it it is an amazing story and to think that. You know, uh, somebody beavering away in an office in Edinburgh uh, can think of um, something as, you know, something as with as high impact as the design of the of the work telescope. Yeah, is is pretty astonishing. So, you know, my con- my my mon- contribution of the wavelength calibration standard pales into absolute insignificance compared with his contribution. But. <laughs> It's a it's a fascinating story, but yeah. it shows you how, how many links there are between these different things and how it, how it sometimes crystallizes out of history long after the event. Right. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Well, we've um, we've covered a lot of ground, haven't we? Um, was there? Yeah, we've probably gone on for long enough, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> was there anything else you wanted to go through before we um, before we wrap this up?
1: I I I think well I I told you in the main areas I think they were the uh, uh, you know the broad background the, the wide angle view uh, the interdisciplinarity uh, the fact that we need to encourage that interdisciplinarity um, you know I was puzzled why all of this work on light and biology happened in departments of ophthalmology, yeah. which I now understand but I didn't understand in the beginning because you can get light into the eye. That's a very important issue, I think. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think, yes, you mentioned this problem about water, and I do think that's very interesting. I I did look at it, as I said to you, I did look at that at the time. Um, I think it's possibly relevant, possibly highly relevant, uh, but I don't know the answer, and I don't really have any means of investigating it, I think. But I, I, I do think there are processes going I think biology is complicated. I know biology is much more complicated than physics. And when you try and isolate a particular phenomenon, you find that many other phenomena are contributing to the same process. And I think that's a hard lesson we have to learn about biology. And it may well be that these perhaps slightly unexpected processes, like the influence of um, slight heating or water or, or light in some way on the structure of water, uh, could well be a significant contributor. Mm. And water is a wonderful story. I um I actually n- knew one of the, the one one of the stellar dynamicists who I grew up with was somebody called donald Lind- Donald Linden Bell, who was a, uh, a, a a well-known theorist Cambridge. and he was around when I was a student. In fact, he examined me from one of my examined me both as my interview in my interview board for my PhD and also for my progress through my PhD. Wow. In the uh, in the in, in in the chapel at Hurston Zoo, so I remember I had an examination and these were oral examinations, which were quite terrifying. And I remember one question he asked me, he said he w- he was pacing up and down the back of the chapel at Person and and he said, Bob, he said, um, I've got this electron and I hit it very hard with a cricket bat. What spectrum does it emit? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So uh, his wife was working on water and water structure. In fact, she was the editor of one of the uh, major tomes on the on the properties of water. So this is another coincidence that that, that goes back to. Um, I, I mean, I knew his wife. <laughs> slightly I knew him quite well but I knew his wife slightly but she was uh she was one of the workers on 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 water uh, so um I'm I'm conscious of the fact that water structure is is very complex and absolutely fascinating and it certainly I I think' without doubt it contributes to bio, biological processes in in many ways and this may be one of the ways I mean the the reason I was somewhat hesitant about it is I'm I don't think I would have chosen that wavelength if I wanted to influence water because there isn't a strong water band at 670 nanometers right. and water the, all the stronger water bands are longer wavelengths so it's not entirely obvious to me that that would be the process one would choose but uh, and when you get down to very thin layers of water the absorption coefficient of water at that, that those infrared wavelengths is very very low mm. um so I don't know but I know I I can't really I don't think I can say much more about it, but I, 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 I hear it. I, I hear what you say. And I, I think it's potentially, uh, uh very relevant, uh, or potentially relevant, but I don't understand how it could work under this circumstance.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure anyone's got a firm grasp on it at the moment. Um, water seems to be very ephemeral, um, and hmm. hard to sort of get your hands around and any, any time you think you're onto something, uh, something uh, pops up that makes you think otherwise. Um, but yeah, I've just, I just missed the, um, international water conference. It was in Germany a couple of days ago. Um, I wanted to go this year, but unfortunately I was unable. I'll try and make it next year because there's a lot of brilliant people there talking about cutting edge stuff. Um, you know, lots of things related to water being conscious, water being able to sort of understand its environment and, wacky stuff <laughs> like that
1: yeah I've, d- I've done a lot of experiments on water myself i managed to do i i managed to observe the Raman spectrum of water with my spectrometer i don't have a Raman setup but i managed to fudge it so i could i could i could observe the entire uh spectrum of water right the way through from the ultra deep ultraviolet right through to uh about six microns and and the uh the, the fundamental bending mode of water just wow. with the spectrometer on my desk and a and a pointer, a laser pointer that I had, Um so I I, I love observing water, and it's absolutely fascinating. But uh, so I'm interested in the structure as well. But <laughs> time will tell. Time will tell. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, it's been a delight to talk to you. I I don't often get the opportunity to <laughs> expose my life in this way, but
0: <laughs> no. Look, in in the interest of interdisciplinarity it's quite fun to do, and. Uh, um, I think I had I had an uh, awesome time talking to you. I was I was nervous uh, trying to um, psych myself up to make sure I didn't say anything stupid, but I think I think we got through <laughs> that all right. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think it's great uh, what what you're doing at the moment um, with Glenn's group. Uh, I I really hope you continue uh, to do this work because I think it's actually making quite a big difference and a lot of people are becoming interested in particularly the health effects of both red and blue light and um, even if we can get one person to sort of change their habits and um, get things get things a little bit more dialed in as far as avoiding uh, poor spectrums uh, that would be fantastic so
1: well, I, I would perhaps compliment that and, and end the message by saying to people if you want to buy LEDs uh, to use at night in your house, don't buy the high temperature ones, buy the low temperature ones and have the warm yellow lighting and not the bright white lighting. I think if we could get that one message over, uh, that would do a lot of good. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more and and I I think think the work that you're doing is only going to continue contributing to people, understanding um, that this is something that's very important and um, Mm. can't be ignored anymore. So, um, yeah, let's hope we can reach as many people as possible Um, and, yeah, keep doing what you're doing um, because it's very meaningful. And, um, yeah, thank you very much.
1: Okay, thanks. Thanks, Cameron. All right, Bob. very, very, very pleased to talk to you. Okay. Yeah, it was also awesome.
0: Best. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep up with Bob's work, I've put links to his profiles in the episode notes. He has an excellent Flickr page that I would really encourage you to check out. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify and YouTube, and leave up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a simple, no-cost way to support my work and help me reach more listeners. Please feel free to leave any comments on my YouTube channel, as I do try and read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all of my social media platforms in the episode notes. If you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast, get information about health, or if you'd just like to reach out, to, or if you'd just like to reach out to me in general. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Take care.